0: As our reading is from Matthew chapter thirteen, forty-four to fifty-two. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found the one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw away the bad. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them therefore every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old and i'm going to pray for mark busy as he, as he comes and um, father we just we thank you for your word and we thank you for bringing mark um along to us today as well um i just want to pray for him as he comes to speak to us um i pray the holy spirit would just Impress in our hearts um, the message that you've um, given him today, Lord. Um, and yeah, may we leave with our desires aligned with yours today as well. Amen.
1: Amen. Uh, thank you, everyone, for having me. Like I said, my name's Mark. I'm the pastor of City Church Dublin. It's a great joy to be here. It's a great joy to, over the last seven years, describe myself as the, you know, I'm the church without Christ. <laughs> That, uh, that hasn't been irritating at any point. Um, so thank you, Steve, uh, for that. Uh, it, uh, it's been a real joy. No, it, is, uh, it is a delight to be uh, with you guys uh, this afternoon. And uh, we're going to uh, focus our attention primarily on these first uh, two parables. I love the uh, you know, Jesus question, have you understood all of these things? Yes. <laughs> really? Okay. Um, we're going to dig into these first two uh, primarily. I wonder if I'm a little bit boomy, uh, if I could just get knocked down a, a touch, because I'm only going to get louder uh, as I get more excited. Uh, how much of the gospel do you want? Uh, I don't know if you remember growing up, going into those sweet shops that had the big jars, and uh, you would go in and you would pick uh, your favorite sweet, whether it was millions uh, or the cola squares or strawberry bonbons. Those are my particular ones that I go to. And the shopkeeper would weigh you out a particular mind. You'd be like, oh, I'd like, a, I'd like a quarter ounce of this or I'd like half an ounce of that back when... I'm sure my age, back when we worked in ounces uh, up in uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, but maybe you think that uh, the gospel kind of gets rationed out like that. How much of the gospel do you want? Well, maybe you're sitting here this afternoon and you're thinking, well, I don't want any of it. Uh, like, it's not, to my, it's not to my taste in the same way that clove rock might not be t- to your taste, uh, but you prefer midget gems or something like that. Or maybe your answer in significantly to that question of how much of the gospel do you want is, well, just enough to make me feel better about myself, Uh, just enough to gain me some uh, social standing, some connection, some emotional help address this uh, particular need. Or maybe you say, just enough to get me into heaven when I die, just enough that will tip me over so that I have my ticket to ride uh, when my number comes up. The parables of the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great price are fundamentally about the value that we place on the gospel, the value that we place on the the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Those two terms are interchangeable. It's the value that we esteem Jesus to have. And that has both some prickly implications for us and also some wonderful assurances, and uh, I hope to bring out both of those. Let's think a little bit about the context of the parables, just to get our uh, our minds uh, straight with this ancient context. Uh, first of all, the treasure hidden in the field, very common thing, not a fully developed financial system. Uh, money was a means of exchange rather than a commodity in and of itself, and so you didn't what we do, essentially, is when we give money to the banks, the banks uh, rent the money off us in the form of interest. That's not really how it worked in the ancient world. It was simply a means of exchange. And so if you were, uh, had any wealth, you would uh, store some uh, in your house, or you'd bury it on your land. Problem is that uh, with all of the uncertainty of the ancient world and different powers coming in, things would happen. You know, another raiding horde would come through and you'd get killed or you'd die suddenly or tragically, and people would forget about the treasure that you had buried. And so it was not uncommon for these things uh, to go forgotten. Similarly, pearls were incredibly valuable in the ancient world Cleopatra uh, of Mark Antony, fame. my namesake. you want to know what my middle name is? My name and middle name is Antony. Um, so Cleopatra was said to own two pearls uh, that had a market value today of around about 30 million, uh, and so very, very precious pearls. One of the things that we need to note about these parables is that these parables aren't about business ethics. Uh, They're not, so we're not going to get into, oh, well, what's the ethics of the guy, you know, being kind of slightly duplicitous and covering it up and then going and buying the field. We're not going to get, because the parable's not about business ethics. How do we know that the parable's not about business ethics? Because Jesus gives us two with the same point. He gives us two in order to clarify what the thrust is. The thrust is not business ethics. The thrust is the value of the kingdom. Do you see? So, what's going on? Well, there are some similarities. Both men recognize value, particularly value that other people have missed. They have an epiphany, they go, this thing I need. They realize and see the value of something that other people have missed. Both of them also recognize that acquiring the object of great value is not a matter of degrees. It's all or nothing. So they sell everything in order to gain the treasure. It's not a matter of degrees, it's all or nothing. They impoverish themselves in order to acquire the treasure. But both of them recognize that the sacrifice of selling everything is worth it. And so they are motivated by joy. Man finding the treasure in his joy, he sold everything that he had, and we'll come to that in just a moment. One very last important note before we look at some more of the details. This is not about how you earn the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not earned, like we were just thinking about in our call to worship. Being willing to sell everything is how we receive the kingdom of God, but it's not how we merit it. The kingdom of God is received, it's not earned. We were thinking from Isaiah 55, that the kingdom of God relationship with him, new life in Jesus, how it's all received by grace. And isn't that wonderful and joyous and good? And it thrills our souls. Here's one of the implications of that, though. If your salvation, if coming into the kingdom of God is all of grace, received, not earned, then there is nothing that Jesus cannot ask of you. There is nothing that Jesus cannot ask of you. If you merit your salvation, if you contribute something to it, you've got negotiating power. But if it's all of grace, then there's nothing that Jesus cannot ask of you. That is why they sell everything. Let's think a little bit about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Because this goes to the idea of it's not a matter of degrees. This is why they sell everything. These parables all the way through Mark 13 have uh, been about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. What is that? Let's just clarify. Maybe you've looked at it already. Sorry, I'm new. You can uh, welcome me afterwards. So let's just make sure that we're clear on what the kingdom of heaven is or the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is the domain over which God rules. It is the domain over which God rules. It is the good place over which he exercises his good dominion for the flourishing of his people. And what we see, therefore, is that Christianity, it's not a matter of degrees, It's not a matter of just cleaning ourselves up a bit, maybe living a little bit differently. It's actually about becoming part of a new domain. Moving from one kingdom to another kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. It is a move into a new reality. We're no longer under this old kingdom. What's the old kingdom? The old kingdom is the kingdom of self-sovereignty. That addiction to me, myself, and I and a move under, to being under God's good authority. And in the Bible, there is, there's no in between. The parables are prickly. They're stark. You saw it when you were looking at the weeds, that there will, there will be this separation of the, the wheat and the weeds. And again, in the parable of the net, Jesus brings it home again. At the end of the age, he says, the angels will come and separate the, the wicked from the righteous. Because they're under two domains. There's no gray in between bit. Do you see? It's very hard to hear. Because we tend to prefer uh, a change of degree. We prefer uh, changes by increment. But the parables are sharp. To enter into the kingdom of God is to come under the rule of God. It is to move from one domain of authority to another. What does that change of domain look like? Let me give you an instance. Take Take the scriptures, right? There are parts of the Bible that are hard to accept. There are parts of the Bible that should make you chafe, make your hair stand on end, stuff that you don't really like. If there isn't anything there, you're not reading it right. But there are two approaches at that point. There are two approaches. There is the person who says, I don't agree with that. I find that hard, and so I reject it. Or there's the person who says, I find that hard. That really gets under, under my skin. But I trust that God's rule is good. Normally, we think of authority as a bad thing, so we need to clarify God's rule is good rule. It is for the maximizing of your flourishing as human beings. And so we say to ourselves, I know that God is good. I know that his rule is good, and so I find this hard, but I'm going to continue to follow him and pray that he will lead me into greater understanding. That's what it means to be no longer under the domain of self-sovereignty, but in the kingdom of heaven, do you see the first person still has themselves as the center of authority. They judge. They evaluate the scriptures. The second person has God as the locus of authority, and the scriptures judge and evaluate them, do you see? Judge and evaluate their reason and experience. You can, you can do theology one of two ways. You can do theology from the earth up, or you can do theology from heaven down. You can either look at the world and your experience and project that upward and say that's what God's like, or you can do theology from heaven down. That is what it is to be under the domain of heaven, under God's good rule. And the only way into the kingdom, secondly, is to be willing to sell everything. To be willing to sell everything. Now, let's be clear. When we first become a Christian, I think we scarcely have the slightest idea of the implications of this. It is as we grow that we begin to see how the gospel affects every area of our lives. Just as sin, that self-sovereignty, that self-love, has affected every area of our lives, the way, we, the way we reason, the way we emote, the way we act, the way we think, the way we relate to one another, so too the gospel begins to kind of seep into the cracks of every area of our life when we begin to kind of recognize the, the implications. And as we grow, one of the things that we need to begin to settle in our hearts is the idea that there is nothing more precious than having Jesus. That everything else is worth selling in order to have him. That if there is a, deci- a choice between Jesus and fill in the blank, Jesus and X, Jesus and Y, I choose Jesus, I will suffer the loss of anything, everything, all things in order to have him. How do we sell everything? What does that look like? Imagine the person who says that they follow Jesus but never publicly want to be identified with him. I'm not saying that everybody who follows Jesus should be uh, terribly obnoxious in the workplace and, uh, and bring every conversation uh, round, kind of ham-fistedly round to the gospel. But there is also a time when, actually, no, one need to be identified with the kingdom. I need, to, I need to be able to be okay with saying, no, actually, I'm no longer part of this domain. I'm part of the, the domain of the good rule of the king. Imagine the person who never wants to publicly identify themselves with Jesus. What's the issue there? They're not willing to sell their image. They're not willing to sell the opinion of others in order to have Jesus. Maybe that's not what it is for you. Maybe it's not your image. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your comfort. Maybe it's your sexuality. You say, if following Jesus requires me to lay that on the altar, then I'm out. I mean, what's going on with Abraham's sacrifice, you know, God calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Say, Abraham, are you willing to sell everything? I've given you your heart's desire, are you willing to sell everything? If you say, I can't lay that aside, then you're not willing to sell everything. Or flip it around the other way. Other people say, I will obey if, if I get this, as long as I have that, then there's something that you want more than Jesus. You're not willing to sell everything, do you see? Think about what you're saying at that point. You're saying that there is something more precious, more life-giving, more nurturing, more salvific than Jesus. Something that you're not willing to lay down. John Lennox, the uh, Oxford mathematics professor and uh, an apologist, uh, tells the story of. Uh, being an undergrad at Oxford and being invited to one of those swanky dinners that apparently they have in Oxford. I think they have them in Trinity too, but uh, I'm sure they're not as swanky as in Oxford. Uh, And uh, being seated next to one of his uh, math professors and uh, it brought the conversation round to the gospel and his professor began to kind of bristle slightly and move the conversation on very quickly. And at the end of the meal, uh, Lennox was heading back to his uh, his rooms and the professor stood at the door of his study and said Lennox come in a minute and he was there and so were other the other faculty members and they said Lennox you have a wonderful promising career ahead of you you can go really far in this field put aside the God stuff let that go stop banging on about Jesus do you know what Lennox said Lennox said, sirs, there is nothing greater that you can offer me than that which I already possess. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you're under the domain of the king who loves you, that you possess the greatest thing in all the world? Willing to sell everything. And then finally, and this is the good news, we sell everything in order to gain unassailable joy. The good news is that Christianity offers us a joy that cannot be taken away from us. Note that the story doesn't say they sold everything with weeping and they did it begrudgingly, but you know, as as they saw the, the money come into their account, they got a bit more joy. No. Joy motivated the selling. Do you see? In his joy, he sold everything. In his joy, he went and sold all he had in order to acquire the field that had the treasure in it. Why? Why did joy motivate the purchasing of the treasure? Because he knew what was coming when he acquired the treasure. He knew the surpassing goodness and delight and joy-giving nature of that treasure, of the kingdom of heaven. You can still have joy even when you sell everything in your life, when you lay it all on the block. You can still have joy knowing, knowing that the treasure is coming to you, knowing that the treasure is yours and that you can possess it, knowing that that it is yours in part now and will be fully at the consummation. That is the, the promise of the Christian. We taste these four tests of the kingdom You experience it now as we lift up our voices together and and feel the sweetness after such a long time being apart from one another. It's a sweetness of life together. It's a foretaste of heaven. It's an echo of the kingdom. And we know that there's more coming. We know that the full consummation is on its way. And so we get joy now. It bubbles up inside of us. It begins to, to snowball. We get joy And that's what allows us to lay everything else aside for the joy of knowing what it is to be part of the kingdom. This is why Christians can have joy even when they suffer loss, even when they suffer tragic loss, loss of career, loss of standing, loss of health, loss of loved ones. Why? Because the source of our abiding joy is not a circumstance, it's a person. It's not a circumstance, it's a person. Captain heaven for us. This is what makes Christian joy unassailable. So how can we grow as we finish? How can we grow in this joyful anticipation of all the things that God has prepared for us in the kingdom of heaven? How can we grow in that joy that makes us willing to lay everything aside? Can I encourage you, to count the treasure of the kingdom, to see the value of the kingdom. This is, what, this is what Paul does at various points in the New Testament. He actually weighs up his sufferings with what's waiting for him. And so he says in Romans 8.18, I do not consider the sufferings of this present age worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits me. He says, I've looked at all the stuff I've gone through And I've realized that the kingdom, what I'm going towards, the glory that awaits me, is more precious, it's more valuable. I've counted it. I've weighed it. Count and weigh the blessings of the kingdom. Chew them over in your head. Chew them over in your heart. And you say, oh, it's just words. It's just words. How can that help me? Words spoke the universe into being. Do you not think that rehearsing those promises of the gospel cannot shape and change the course and direction of your heart that can stir your affections for the Lord Jesus. Count the treasures of the kingdom. And so Paul again in Philippians 3, 7, after he gives this CV of all of the earthly things that he had, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, circumcised on the eighth day, all of these things, faultless with regards to the law. And what does he say? Whatever gain I had, I count it all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ my Lord. Food as loss, work as loss, family as loss, comfort as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Paul saying, I've weighed it up. I'm looking at my circumstances and I'm looking at Jesus. And what have I realized? Jesus is more precious. How much of the gospel do you want? The reality is that Jesus doesn't give out fractions. He is the one who laid it all aside, emptied himself of all in order to become our sacrifice, in order to humble himself, to become obedient to God. He is the one who who laid it all aside. He doesn't give out fractions because he didn't ration himself to you. How much will it cost? It will cost you everything. What will you gain? Unassailable joy under the reign of good King Jesus. Let's just be quiet for a moment, and maybe just reflect on what that means for you. What God is asking you to uh, to sell, what He is asking you to hold more lightly to. You know that that hymn that says, uh, "Lord, when I when I cling too tightly to what I have, wrest it quickly from my grasp." What are those things? And ask God that we might know, more fully know the unassailable joy of the kingdom of God. Let's just be quiet and invite Andrew up and they'll lead us in a short prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you made yourself nothing that we might receive everything, that in your poverty we are made rich. In seeing and savoring that this afternoon, would you help us to reorder our values, reorder our priorities? Would you give us a heart by your Holy Spirit that is willing to sell everything? in order to see and savor you. May we know what it is to flourish under your good rule in the kingdom of heaven. And May we know it now. And may that spur us on until we see you face to face. We pray it for your glory.